0: yoo running crew! Welcome to Dancing is Forbidden and Aqua Teen Hunger Force Exploration. I am Ronnie, and on this podcast, we successfully deep dove through every episode of Season 3. Is deep dove... is that, a, is that the right word? I don't know. But you know, what, you, know, you know what we do here. We talk through all the episodes, and now it's time for our season retrospective, where we're going to be looking at Season 3 as a whole and just kind of wrapping it up before we get into Season 4. And beyond that, we're also going to be going through the pop culture of 2004, the highlights, you know, the highest grossing films, best-selling albums, best-selling video games, and then I'll be giving you my thoughts along the way. So, before we get into the pop culture stuff, I just want to say up front that Season 3 was surprising to me, because I was familiar with some of the episodes but most of them that I was familiar with, my my recollection of wasn't that crazy, so I didn't really know how I'd feel about this season, and this being the first season of the show that I wasn't super familiar with, like I was the first two, so honestly, I was a little worried, I was like, what if I don't like this season, like, what does that mean for the podcast, but that was not the case, I just was blown away by this season, there's really only one episode I can say I don't like, and... Um, Beyond that, I just was, was so surprised by the variety we got here. So, we'll be talking about this and more. I'll be giving you my my top three favorite episodes of the season, my top three favorite villains. Of course, there weren't that many villains, but uh, we'll, we'll be talking about the ones that we can here. I do want to to pay respect to the new villains that we got. So, having said that, why don't you take a trip down memory lane with me. Let's talk about the highest grossing films of 2004. Okay, so coming in at number four, we have The Incredibles, bringing in $631 million this year. And this is a film I did see at the time, and I feel like I've seen it recently, and it definitely holds up. It's a pretty interesting, you know, kids kind of superhero movie. And I'm looking at some of the trivia about it. One interesting thing here is it is the only Pixar film written by one person, which is nuts. 14 years later, of course, The Incredibles 2 came out, which I'm not sure that I've seen yet, but that first one, I mean, it makes sense to me that it did as well as it did. I remember it just being a pretty big standout kind of film at the time. So let's jump in here to our number three top grossing film of 2004, and that is Spider-Man 2, bringing in $788 million, so quite a step up from The Incredibles here from 631 to 788. But Spider-Man is something that's always kind of, uh, I don't want to say plagued the podcast, but something we've always kind of talked about because of how big it was back at the time. And that is funny because Spider-Man is still very much big today. I mean, they're still making movies. So it's one of those things that, you know, is is pretty unsurprising to see it here. And that one too, I remember when it came out, I don't have really as many memories of it as I do the first Spider-Man But looking at the lineup here, I'm seeing a connection between Spider-Man 2 and Aqua Teen with Mr. Bruce Campbell being in Spider-Man 2 and, of course, playing Chicken Biddle in the colon movie film for theaters. Uh, To mention IMDb rankings, on The Incredibles, they had an 8 out of 10. And then Spider-Man 2 here has a 7.4 out of 10. So I guess for for whatever that's worth. So I guess that's it for Spider-Man 2. Let's move on to our second top grossing film of 2004. This one, not a superhero movie this time, breaking the mold of the previous two. We have our boy Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, bringing in $795 million this year. And this isn't that much more than Spider-Man 2. But uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, I've probably said on this podcast, I really don't like the Harry Potter movies. I remember seeing the first one in theaters after that, I, and I think maybe the second one. After that, I don't know if I ever saw the third one when it came out, but I have, I have seen it since. I just don't really care for these films. I do like the books a lot. I think the books are really good. But uh, yeah, the movies just never really did anything for me. And Prisoner of Azkaban being my least favorite Harry Potter book, because I don't know, I remember just thinking it was kind of boring. Now this is like 10 years ago when I read it, so I don't remember specifically, but I remember easily this was my least favorite book. It probably would be my least favorite film too. But this one with a 7.9 out of 10 on IMDb, so better than Spider-Man. And I think... Probably a fair rating here. I'm reading the uh, the trivia here on IMDb, and it says, Aware of his fondness for music, Gary Oldman presented Daniel Radcliffe with a bass guitar as a gift when they met. So, uh, very nice of Gary Oldman. I think uh, you can keep that one in your back pocket if you ever meet me. Uh, I like bass guitars, too. Old Danny Radcliffe isn't the only one out there. So, our number one top-grossing film of 2004... You know what it is. It's fucking Shrek 2, baby. You can't even be mad about that. Shrek 2 bringing in $928 million, almost a billion dollars from Shrek this year. And that's a little low. It should have been $2 billion, I think. Now, I never saw this movie at the time. I'm not sure why. It's possible I saw clips, like, if I was over at family's houses or whatever, and if maybe it was on or something. But I never really sat down and watched it until this year. I watched it with my friends and I was actually surprised how good it was. I really enjoyed it. It was like better than I was expecting because, you know, Shrek is like Mimi and, and, and fun to uh, joke about. So that's that's why we were watching it, really. And I'd seen the first one. We had watched the first one together too recently. Uh, But this one, I was just surprised by the scope of it. Basically, uh, you have Shrek and Fiona together, but Fiona's parents don't like that she's with Shrek, who's a fucking ogre. And so there's just all sorts of stuff that happens in it. And I was, again, just surprised. So uh, a good film, like way better than I thought. Surprisingly, though, only with a 7.3 out of 10 IMDb. I feel like that's low. But Shrek 2, man, I was like surprised. I'm like, how I never seen this before. This is really funny. And so I still haven't seen the third one yet or any of the other ones, but I'll get to it eventually. Before we get out of our film chat, let me just give you my top three favorites of the time. So these are films that I would have seen around this period that I would have liked. So coming in third place, I have the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. I didn't watch this a ton, but I know for sure I saw it in theaters at the time. So I thought it was cool because I always liked SpongeBob growing up. I still do. Like I could put on any of those old episodes and I think they stand up and SpongeBob being one of those shows that was for kids, but there was stuff in it, you know, for adults too. Like the people who made it just did that to probably keep themselves sane. So SpongeBob, a classic show. I don't have to tell you that. And I remember just seeing the movie was just a fun novelty. It's always fun when an animated show you love gets a, a theatrical release like this. So I remember that. I remember, you know, David Hasselhoff is in it. It's just just a fun time. I remember not being blown away by it. Like, I didn't think it was better than the show, which is usually the case with animated films like that, or whenever just a TV show gets a film like that. But, you know, I wanted to put it here. I have very uh, clear recollections of, of seeing it in the theater. So on to number two, my second favorite film of 2004 at the time would have been Shaun of the Dead. And I know we've touched on it on the podcast, but it's just so funny, and me being somebody who hasn't seen a ton of zombie films, um, I didn't really get maybe if they were making explicit references to other films, but for what it was as a standalone thing, I just thought it was so fun and, and so funny. So a lot of love here for Shaun of the Dead. I I just saw it so many times on DVD at the time. And then my favorite film of 2004, one of my favorite films of all time, is Napoleon Dynamite? I just like this was one of the first instances of seeing something that was just so unique and so kind of weird in a good way that I was like, "Holy shit! I'd never seen anything like that before." I mean, I probably started watching Aquatine around the same time, so I probably came into both of these at the same exact time. Where it's just these weird, niche, unique things that are just so great and just so uniquely themselves. And that is Napoleon Dynamite here. I mean, it's still quotable to this day. And I haven't really watched it recently, so I don't know how well it holds up. But I would suspect it does. I really want to see it soon. And the fun thing about Napoleon Dynamite was that, unlike Aqua Teen, my mom really liked Napoleon Dynamite. So, like, she'd, you know, have it on a lot and we'd watch it together a lot. And just quoting it with my friends or or with my cousins, which was probably, like, a first time of me getting to have that experience. Because... At the you know, in 2004, I would have been between, like, 10 and 11, so just kind of getting to see media reflected in the world in that way, outside of it just being, like, you know, kid stuff, because before that, I was probably watching kids shows, and I don't know if you really walk around quoting that. Maybe I did, I don't know, but I remember so many vivid memories of, of watching this film so many times, and the acting in it is hilarious. The whole plot is just, like, so, so niche and, and unique, and the music, too, is so great. In fact, Years later, I did a, a remix uh, for a friend of mine's release, and I, I I totally changed, like, the whole vibe of his song, which was, like, kind of like a, I don't want to say a darker song, but at, towards the end, I do this kind of uh organ-y sounding solo, and it's, like, straight from Napoleon Dynamite. I didn't even intend it, but this was just, like, Napoleon Dynamite's music just coming out of the recesses of my brain. So I'll actually, I'll throw that on the end of the, of the podcast there, that little solo part, because it's like so unintentionally Napoleon Dynamite. It's so great. Love this film. I need to watch it again. So those are my top three favorite films of the time when I was watching. Of course, now, these days, I've told you on the podcast, like Hillary Duff's dog shit movie, Raise Your Voice is like a current favorite of mine. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle came out this year, the Studio Ghibli film, which is great. Uh, Garden State, Zach Braff's film, came out that year, Mean Girls, White Chicks, all sorts of good stuff. So 2004, actually a pretty exciting year for me for films, as opposed to 2003, 2002 in our previous season retrospectives. I didn't have as much to talk about here. So I wonder if that'll continue on as we go through the years and as I'm more familiar with uh, the media of those years. So that is our film chat. I think it's time to jump over to our music chat here Let's give a sweet listen to our third top selling album of 2004. Our third place record here for 2004 is James Blunt with Back to Bedlam. Now, I just talked about this on the podcast back in the HypnoGerm episode, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much. But again, just my mom had this growing up. It was a hit at the time. I mean, it's the third best selling album, so no surprise that she was one of the 11 million people that bought this record in 2004. So I heard a lot of this. I really enjoy this record. I think James Blunt as a person seems pretty cool. And a very beautiful voice and some catchy songwriting. So I'm not going to talk too much about it again because I did talk about it in a previous podcast episode. But I should say there is an asterisk after this album. And technically, this was the fourth top-selling album. The real third was Guns N' Roses' Greatest Hits. But that's like all 80s songs and some 90s songs. So I didn't want to include it. So this was the fourth top-selling record technically. Uh, But uh, in terms of new music, this would have been the third. So sorry, Guns N' Roses. I love you, but I didn't want to have to talk about uh, an album comprised of hits from the 80s. So next up, our second place album, What Is It? A hard song to cut off here, but of course, in second place, we have Green Day with American Idiot, also one that we talked about in HypnoGerm, and we've kind of been mentioning on the podcast, so no reason to get super into it, but it did sell over 12 million copies in 2004. And just a, a an important record to me again. This is one of my first recollections of really paying attention to popular music at the time, and specifically alternative music at the time. And uh, just uh, continuing on with that as I got older. So a lot of love for Green Day and American Idiot. And again, go back to Hypno Germ if you want to hear me talk more about this record. So moving on to our number one album of the year. Who's the top dog? Peace up, A Town, <laughs> Yeah yeah yeah. Okay, yeah. Usha, usha, usha. Go, yeah, 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 let's go. in the club with my homies, tryna get a little V.I., keep her down on the low-key, she know how it is. I started shorty, she was checking That's up for me, from the game she was... I dare you to find a better song about going out to the club with the homies. I don't think it's possible because Usher, he nailed it on Yeah from his album Confessions, the top record of 2004 selling. Uh, I've just seen here, it says 20 million un- units. I-, I I don't think it's actually a clear 20 million. I don't know what the deal is, but that's 8 million more than Green Day's record of 12 million, 12.4 million specifically. So Usher Confessions... Uh, specifically the song Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that on the podcast. We've talked about this record on the podcast back in the uh, Unremarkable Voyage episode. So I'm not going to get too into it, but I was checking out some of the other songs on this, and there's really just a lot of very beautiful songs, and Usher's voice is just amazing. Uh, I never, I think in my mind, gave him enough credit. So I need to listen to this full thing front to back. I feel like it'd be worth it. And uh, I mean, it sold 20 million copies this year, so uh, that's not really a very controversial statement to make so three of these three of these top records here we've talked about in the podcast so again just kind of breezing through them but of course uh let's dive into some records that we didn't really talk about in the podcast let me very quickly give you my three favorites from 2004 and unlike the films these are not necessarily albums i was listening to at the time but uh having said that let's check out my third favorite album from 2004 Uh. My third favorite record from 2004 is My Chemical Romance's Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge. Not really a surprise. I think it was the season one retrospective where I talked about their first record and how much I love that one. This one I did grow up with around the time it came out, probably about a year later in 2005. It was really big. This song specifically, Helena on MTV was huge, the music video. So that's where I saw it. And that's where I would get a lot of my music was from MTV music videos as fucking ancient as that sounds now. I mean, I must have been one of the last few people in 2005, 2006, really being informed by MTV before it just went to reality television, basically. But yeah, I'd always see this video. I always loved this song. And I think this was the first song I ever got on my iPod when I uh, got that because my cousin had the CD. So she let me burn the CD into my computer and then put it on my iPod when I got that in 2005, I think. So I love this record. And this being probably like the first kind of Emo-ish music I listen to. Uh, the the emo music I listen to now is not really in this style. It's what I listen to would be Midwest Emo, which is more math-rocky. But uh, yeah, this, I mean, My Chemical Romance, you know, with their next record, Black Parade, were huge, selling out stadiums. And I just have a, a soft spot for this album. I don't listen to it much. I, I prefer to listen to their first record uh, because of the rawness and, I guess, the punkiness of it. Uh, I don't know why this, this second record, as much as I loved it growing up, it never... Uh, Stuck with me now, but I still I still think it's great. I think there's a lot of great songs on it, so really wanted to mention it here. Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge, uh, an important record for me in my development of of the music I would go on to like. So before we leave this record, I do want to mention somebody else who likes this album is Billie Eilish, I guess, and I know that because my buddy Colby has sold her shirts. Like he's he works with her stylist to to track down like vintage band tees and stuff. So because of that. My buddy Colby really got into this album uh, like a couple years ago, Uh, so I thought that was a, a, a funny turn of events, and also surprising to me, but not surprising to know that huge stars like Billie Eilish, I guess, have people get their clothes for them. Which, on the surface, is like, well, yeah, no shit. I mean, it makes sense if it's some crazy outfit, but I was like shocked. I'm like, really? She has other people pick out her band tees. Like, what the fuck? But hey, that's showbiz, baby. So let's move on to my second favorite record of 2004. My second favorite album from 2004 is the Killers with Hot Fuss, of course, and their mega, super-duper smash breakout hit, Mr. Brightside. And I remember this song when it came out and just hearing it everywhere. And always wanting the CD, I didn't get it until years later. But this song was just everywhere. I mean, if you were around at the time, I'm sure you're well aware of that. And if you're around now, I'm sure you're aware of that because it's still around now. It's still just as you know big as it was then, I feel like. And it's just a song that... Uh, And you could not like it, but I I think it's hard to argue it's a bad song. It's such a great song. But the the entire record has equally great songs. Like the first track, Jenny Was a Friend of Mine, which isn't like a super huge hit, but a very good one. But other hits, like All These Things I've Done, I remember seeing that video a lot. Somebody Told Me, uh, Smile Like You Mean It. But the problem with this record for me is all the songs I listed are in the first half. I feel like it's definitely top heavy, this album. Um, so because of that, it's not one of my favorite Killers records. And in fact, it's like way different than anything else they did. Because after this one, two years later in 2006, they came out with Sam's Town, which was much more in in the vein of Bruce Springsteen. And they kind of continued with that for the rest of their career to an extent. So this album, like a standout in their discography, because it's way poppier than anything else they did. And also you have like Brendan Flowers, like singing... In this kind of uh, faux British accent at times, even though he's from like the, what Western United States, like it doesn't really make sense. But overall, like a great album. I, I have a very huge soft spot for this one. I still listen to it. And hey, it's a good time. Again, Mr. Brightside, you can't argue with it. So on to my first favorite record of 2004. No surprise if you listen to the Spacegate World coverage, but my favorite record from 2004 is Kings of Leon with AHA Shake Heartbreak. Uh, Not to get too in the weeds, but this actually came out in the UK first, which is weird because Kings of Leon are a Tennessee band from the United States. But they always did way better in the UK at first until they became a global phenomenon with their 2008 record Only by the Night with songs like Sex on Fire, "Use Somebody, uh, Crawl. Like They were really big that year. Uh, But before that, back here in 2004, they, for whatever reason, came out in the UK first with this record. I don't know why. So in the US, it's a 2005 record, but I want to talk about it here. And yes, I love this record. In fact, looking at my last FM account, which logs all of my plays, I'm a huge music data nerd. Uh, This is my seventh most played album of all time. So just to give you an idea, I've bought it several times over and just so much love for this record I can't sing its praises enough, and yeah, just another one of those bands that uh, ended up becoming huge, like uh, My Chemical Romance, and I guess maybe The Killers. The Killers were huge with their first record, though, unlike these other bands, but uh, I just prefer prefer the earlier records for whatever reason. Uh, I think it has to do with both bands being so young. Like Kings of Leon, I've said it before, but they're a family band, so three of the guys are brothers, and the, the lead guitarist is, a- is their cousin. And when their first record came out the previous year, so if you listen to the last retrospective, you know, I I love Kings of Leon. I talked about their first record on that one. Um, They were all very young. I mean, the bass player at this point was like 17, 18 when this record came out, uh, and the other guys were all in their early 20s. So I think there's something to young people... Just figuring it out, and I think that can breed some very interesting music because they don't have any expectations yet. They have a lot to prove, as opposed to now Kings of have put out some records that are a bit more homogenized, and it's like, yeah, I get it. Like That's your livelihood. You have to try and make a, a polished product, but there's something magical to these early records. As you can tell I love it. So I'm going to stop talking about it here. This is our 2004 music. I think a good year for music and of course there's plenty of other records here that we could talk about that were great from that year, but hey, I think it's time to talk about some video games. So I'm not going to be giving numbers for these games just because like I feel like with games especially they're so inconsistent. So uh, I'll just I'll just tell you according to Wikipedia our third best-selling game globally of the year was FIFA football 2005 this coming to multiple platforms and just I mean we talked about recently on the podcast but I I think just a a well-received game at the time are people going back to it now and playing it I don't really know I don't think so I don't think I don't even know if these kinds of yearly release sport games are played like that because I have just never played one Uh, but still it's sold a lot not surprising here and of course when I say football uh, I mean, you know, it's FIFA, so that would be uh, you know, global football or soccer if you are in the United States. Uh, just in case you're unfamiliar, so our second top selling game of the year is Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green on the Game Boy Advance. And I want to take a second there to say that how surprising that is that something exclusive to one console sold. More than something that was multi platform and other games that were multi platform, you would expect this to be all multi platform games here on the top three, but that's not the case. We have Pokemon Fire Red Leaf Green, and this being honestly looking through the game's release this year, I can't imagine this is actually true, but I think this is the only 2004 game I played in 2004. So, lots of fun memories here. I've talked about Pokemon a lot on the podcast, but. These games, I have fond memories. They remade the initial games from the 90s uh, with the current engine on the Game Boy Advance, so you know it looked a lot better, played a lot better than the original one. It really was due for a remake, and I think they did a good job here. However, having said that, I find the like just this this era of Pokemon games, the first era, kind of boring, maybe compared to what they did later on. So, not really something I'm rushing back to play. But I did play the hell out of it. I know I had for sure over a hundred hours on my Game Boy Advance copy uh, before I restarted it. S- I still have the copy, but uh, I- I've given it to s- uh, to friends since then, so I don't have my original files on there. But I do still have my Charizard from when I got this game. I- I- I've i transferred it up all these years, and I have it on my Nintendo Switch right now. So <laughs> uh, pretty cool there, I guess, to have this this digital pet for so long. But our top-selling game... Of 2004, no surprise here. If you've listened to the other retrospectives, we have Grand Theft Auto: San Andreas, another exclusive to the PlayStation 2, and this one just selling gangbusters. I mean, it was a humdinger. They they fucking it was a home run, knocked out of the park. Grand Theft Auto. It's really crazy to see how Rockstar was putting these out yearly, if not multiple Grand Theft Autos a year. Like, we had Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City coming out very close to each other, and then now, in 2004, we have another game. Yet, in 2023, it's been a long time since we've gotten a new Grand Theft Auto game, I think. Uh, they just are really spreading them out these days, but they're taking a lot of... Like, they just, they just take more to make now. I think that the the iterations between these early Grand Theft Auto games, the jumps weren't as extreme as opposed to now, like the, the last Grand Theft Auto game, Grand Theft Auto 5 was like huge, it was like a huge advancement from the previous game, so it makes sense why they're, they're taking like 10 years to come out with the next one, but yeah, San Andreas, I never actually played this one, but I was looking, I did play Vice City, So I was comparing it to Vice City here and just looking up comparisons. And I guess San Andreas is just considered a better game. It looks better. uh, There's more tech behind it. The gameplay is better. uh, The the missions are more interesting. Not to say Vice City is just inherently a worse game. uh, Because there are some realms that people thought it it did better than San Andreas in. But San Andreas here, I am not surprised to see it at the top of our list. So very quickly to give you my top three from 2004. Like I said... Pokemon Fire Red was the only one I played in 2004, so that's coming in at my third pick, just for nostalgic reasons, even though I don't think it's the best Pokemon game or anything like that. Uh, in second place, I have World of Warcraft. I talked about that in the, on the uh, Carl the Spacegate World episode, so I'm not going to get too into it, but I really love playing World of Warcraft in t- 2020. I had a blast with it. Of course, I didn't play it back when it came out, um, but really like that. I'm, I'm sure I'll maybe try and play it again eventually, but I was Surprised how much I liked World of Warcraft. Uh, And then in first place, no surprise, Half-Life 2. I'm a Half-Life fanboy, and that game came out in 2004. Talked about that again in Spacegate World. I guess, in hindsight, a mistake for me to get so in-depth on these games in that episode if I was going to be talking about them here. But I like to contextualize things so you know kind of when things came out in comparison to the Aqua Teen episodes. But yeah, Half-Life 2. Um, I, I I'm always replaying the Half. Well, not always, but I have replayed the Half-Life games. I love the Half-Life games; they're classics. You can't go wrong with them. So that is our video games from 2004. You know what? I just realized this is an Aquatine podcast. Why don't we talk about some Aqua Teen Hunger Force? So we're gonna be diving into my top three favorite episodes of season three. And before I do, I gotta let you know, as always, whenever we do a season retrospective like this, I put out a YouTube video where I rank through all of the episodes in the season in conjunction with the previous seasons. So like when we started season one, I just ranked season one. When we did season two, I added in season two to that. And now I added in season three. So if you'd like to see that YouTube video and how I came to my kind of conclusions and, and where I placed each episode this season within all the previous Aqua Teen episodes check the description there hope you like it uh just you know nice it's a nice time to talk about these episodes in a shorter different kind of format but what we're doing here now is because i made that video i know what my top three favorite episodes are before making that video i didn't know but now i know my third favorite episode of season three is carlos oh oh you got a big old piano on your back it's an e and o what the hell is that it takes are mp3s that you download live off the internet and transforms be into this song yeah but will it do the ultimate song boston's more than a feeling yeah It'll do anything and turn it into this song. You're serious? Yeah, I got you one. Friggin' awesome. Do you like to do the treadmill? Exercises for women. Now you can. The concert's in your head. My third favorite episode from season three is E-Dork. I love Carl there. Friggin' awesome. Like, he's so into it. And, uh, of course, I don't want to drone on too long about these episodes because you can just go check out the full, you know, deep dive into it, but... I just like this one held up to me. I had seen it before and I didn't know, you know, going into it, how it would be, but it's so funny. I love seeing them use technology in the show and just have this completely cumbersome, inefficient, stupid technology. But then they have Shake being its basically salesman the entire time talking about how great it is, even though we can see visually it's absolutely ridiculous. God knows how much money they spent on all this stupid crap that doesn't really do anything new. And just to this episode's credit, I love in the way that they built this episode that it's one where there isn't a whole lot going on visually, particularly in the second half when Shake is basically just standing outside shrinking into the ground because all this stuff is so heavy, but they're able to pull it off and just have a a hilarious, absurd episode. So I can't sing the praises of this one enough. There's something almost satisfying to me watching Shake's kit build up over the course of the episode. So Instead of most episodes have some sort of slow burning body horror, say something like Supermodel, but in this one you just watch this whole uh, technology ecosystem thing just build up and up and up and it's it's really fun. It's a good time and there's just non-stop hilarity. Anytime that Shake and Carl are on the same page on something is usually going to be fun. So that's what this one is. So let's jump in and discuss my second favorite episode. From Season 3. Congratulations! You're the Moon Master! In your face! Unbelievable! No way! Beyond all comprehension. Nobody makes it past Level 3. Well, except out do. Remember me, guys? <laughs> That's him. You remember him? Oh, yes. How surprisingly delightful. Two Moon Masters in one house. What are the chances? I'm not surprised! Me neither. I'm damn good! Earning its place as my second... Favorite episode of season three, we have Moonmaster, also known as Moon Knights for the final mooning. And in this one, it's just such a fun time. You have the Moon Knights coming down, not only tricking Meatwad, not only tricking Shake, but also tricking Carl into joining their MLM scheme. And it's so funny when Frylock is the only other guy in the episode not wrapped up in this. So then we see them just kind of assault him, trying to get him to sign into this. It's such a good time from top to bottom, me being somebody who loves MLMs and and that kind of thing just just looking into that. Of course, I feel terrible for the people who aren't on top, who aren't profiting, which is most people within the program. But on to this episode and I think really to this season's credit with the Moon Knights because this episode isn't the only episode this season with the Moon Knights and it's not the only episode this season with the Moon Knights that does something differently. Because even though the Remooned episode is not one of my top three picks, I did appreciate the way that that one used the Moon and in a different way. They were actually working with the Aqua Teens in that episode, and not taking over the episode as much as contributing to it with the Aqua Teens. And here, they do a different approach in that the Moon Knights, again, they're not in your face the whole time. In fact, they're not even in the episode that much. They come down, do their thing, and then they leave again. And that pattern is repeated throughout the episode, and they really drive the point of the episode, they drive the humor, but they're not in it. And I really do appreciate that, that Matt and Dave were playing with using the Moonen Knights in these different ways, as opposed to the first two seasons where basically, you know, they show up and they just fuck with the Aqua Teens in this very just outright and obvious way. This time it's more subtle, and I just really appreciate it. So it's such a great episode moon master i love it so much i'll never get sick of it and uh hey it's not the last moon and Night episode so we'll see how they continue on using the moon and Nights. but until then let's jump in and talk about my favorite episode from season three friends relations whatever the hell meatwad is i've lived a full life it's actually been pretty bitchin but now regrettably my life has been taken Please bury me with all my stuff because you know it's mine. Dearest Meatwad. Turn on that dumb game because I'm going to wail on you from the grave, baby! (laughs) Fuck it up, mother! (laughs) Missing you already. MS. Fry man, I am so sorry that uh, I can't press charges here. Yeah, me too. Coming in at my number one spot is no surprise here. It is Video Ouija, what I feel is a very, very classic episode of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And this being one that I was very familiar with before even starting the podcast, it's one that I saw a few times on TV as a kid. I always loved it. And going into it here, it was no shocker to me that I still loved it. It was still great. It still held up. We have just so much going on here. I mean, you have Shake killing himself at the beginning of the episode, driving the episode with his death, but we have the video Ouija component of this whole video game aspect that Moonmaster touched on as well. And then we get, of course, the whole Billy Witch Doctor section, which I'm not going to talk about much here because. Something tells me we're going to be talking about old BillywitchDoctor.com in a little bit. But there's so many moving parts to this episode, so many different aspects of it. And to me, so far, up till this point in Aqua Teen, it is easily the best season opener. I mean, it's just a classic episode. I know Rabot is a classic episode in so much as it's the first Aqua Teen episode, but I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody's arguing it's the strongest. I don't think anybody's arguing that Super Birthday Snake is the strongest. But I think there's a good argument to be had here that this episode, Video Ouija is the strongest. Of course, it's Missing Shake, but it's an episode really about Shake. And we, we touch base with him a few times. He has some great lines in this one. All the characters just have time to shine in this episode. So uh, no surprise here from me that it is my favorite episode of the season. The previous two, I think, come very close, but this one, not only do I think on a technical level, it's just a, a fantastic episode, but for me, on a, on a nostalgic level, I just remember this one being a little kid, loving this one so much, and now here I am, almost 20 years later, loving it even more. So those are my top three favorite episodes of Season 3. We had E-Dork, we had Moon Master, and we had Video Ouija. Of course, if you'd like to let me know yours... Link in the description to find me. I'm at Aquateen Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and now threads. Dancing is forbidden pod at gmail.com. Let me know your faves of the season. So let's move on and discuss my favorite villains of the season. Coming up in my number three villain spot is I win, brother. I win, I win, I win. In your face, while like I got win. Come on, where's everybody going? My third favorite villain from season three is the parasite from South Bronx Paradise Diet. And I know this might be a controversial one because we only see the parasite at the very end. But if you think about it, he was controlling Carl throughout most of the episode. So I don't even know if I touched on this in the podcast episode, but... He's kind of, like, there, but not really. It's kind of cool the way that we get this reveal of a villain that was there the entire time. But besides that, we have Akhenaten Nickens, who was a little kid at the time, just doing a great job. And there's something really nice to this really just unsettling episode. You know, we have Carl crawling on the ceiling, eating bugs, and then at the end, his skin rips open. You think it's this terrifying thing... But it's this cute little parasite thing. And of course it is really horrifying if you think about it, but I thought the idea to play him as a little kid uh, on Matt and Dave's part of getting a kid to do this is just brilliant. I think it's like messed up, but it's cute and funny at the same time. It's like a reveal to a reveal because first it's revealed that there was a parasite inside of Carl and then it's revealed the parasite is like this little kid. So it's just, it's just, there's layers to this. It's so funny. I love it so much. And Before I go on here, of course, as always, I need to mention that the term villain here can be very loose, particularly in Season 3, where we weren't as reliant on villains as previous seasons. But also, a lot of the times here, we get some sort of, uh, quote, villain that isn't even really a villain. You know, we might see that going forward here. And worth mentioning that any villain that has shown up in previous seasons is not qualified to be here. These are just within the brand new season three characters so with that out of the way let's jump to my second favorite villain of season three where's your phone you can call Candyland, land with this one talk to gumdrop Leo. you need a calling card made of candy you are in big trouble i want the real phone and i want it now or i will tear your soul apart Tell Tell who? The rage of hell will feast upon you, and I'll make it happen! My second favorite villain from season three is Robo-Sitter, played by Sarah Silverman. And I just love how Sarah plays this. And of course, the Robo-Sitter in front of Frylock, at least in the beginning, is, you know, well-behaved, well-mannered. And then as soon as the adults are out of the room, she just goes fucking psycho on Meatwad here. And it's so delightful And I said it in the podcast episode, I said it in the ranking video on YouTube. I'm going to say it again. It is really sad to me that Sarah Silverman didn't come back to Aqua Teen to play more characters. She could have been a regular on the show, I think. She just really has that it factor that I think jives well with Aqua Teen. She seems to just i don't know the way the way she played this character just fits in perfectly to aquatine it's not even so much oh wow there's a uh, a guest star here it's also like wow this really fits in perfectly so i really liked robo sitter diving into that episode i didn't think i was going to like it based on my recollections of it as a kid but i was blown away by the episode i thought it was a very good one but also by sarah's performance and just the robo sitter character in general is so funny to me i mean after that clip i played she picks up the phone And she's talking on the phone to a character named Sheila, but you hear that it's just a dial tone. Like, she's not actually talking to anybody. She's just absolutely insane. It is so funny, and I think stands as one of my favorite villains of Season 3, and one of the real, just kind of traditional villains of Season 3, which, again, this season did not have that many of. I mean, there's a a few extra new characters here, but not many of them are our classic villains, as we saw, especially in the first season of the show. But I think Robo-Sitter really uh, is in that vein. So really appreciated seeing her here. Let's go and talk about my favorite villain from season three of Aqua Teen. Please, please, all together, hold hands. No, 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 sir. I don't know what kind of vibe you think you got off me, but uh, I don't play that way. I'm not that way. Carl. Man, I don't uh, do both sides of the field. You know, offense and defense, you know, with the short shorts. No. Carl, is just a seance. It's not that way. Come on, will you? Now, please, kiss him deep with tongue. Do what? <laughs> just kid. Just kid, dirty boy. My favorite villain from season three is no surprise here. Not only because I hinted at it, but my favorite episode was Video Ouija. Makes sense that my favorite villain is is billywitchdoctor.com. I mean, first of all, he has a website in his name. That's just classic Aqua Teen territory, really just telling of this period in, in technology, how, you know, .com, it was like this big thing at the time, and, and just characters straight up having that in their name. Of course, in season one, we had wizard.com, and here, <laughs> billywitchdoctor.com. But I just love the way that when this character is introduced, you think it's just going to be, oh, okay, it's a witch doctor stereotype, They're going to play with that, but he really has this personality of his own, and he is just so funny. He's always dunking on them, always making fun of them, always having them do just silly things and fucking around with their trust, and being so incredibly unprofessional in the process, I think just makes him one of the most delightful villains. I have to address here, you know, the term villain- Probably not accurate, but of course the term villain in Aqua Teen has always been kind of a loose definition because he, he, there, there's very rarely just an inherently bad villain on the show. A lot of the times the characters, even if they hate them, like the Moon Knights, they still kind of hang out with them and, and don't mind when they're around. So, I mean, in, in terms of like notable guest characters in the show for me, or at least this season, but also in the show in general, billywitchdoctor.com is up there among the best of them because I just love the way that they subvert your expectation of what this character is going to be and just give him such a fun and and kind of carefree personality. I am sad we didn't get more of him. So those are my top three favorite villains. Looking through the villains on this season, um, it wasn't hard to come up with with a list, but there aren't that many as, as opposed to other seasons. And a lot of the ones that we get are only for a little bit. For example, we get Dracula in the Little Brittle episode, but it's like, well, you know, not not a whole lot happens with him. Um, you know, we get like Uncle Cliff, who's fun. We get the Gorgatron. We get uh, Ted Nugent. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on here, but there weren't a lot of of standout original villains. Again, these are original to season three. So Plutonians, Moon Knight's not on the table here. Uh, even even Little Brittle I didn't include because it's really just MCP pants. And at times it was like, okay, well, there's HypnoGerm. There's a bunch of extra characters there. Do I write all of these down? I guess ultimately you could and you should. I mean, I do plan to rank all of the villains at some point, probably once we finish up with the podcast, uh, finishing up covering the show. Uh, so there's like all sorts of new characters in HypnoGerm, but I just really went with these more memorable ones to me and for the reasons that I gave. So... There's actually a lot of different answers that could be had here. Again, if you want to let me know your favorite villains, please do. But of course, we'll address more of how Aqua Teen handled villains coming up. But before I go and wrap this up with my overall thoughts on season three, I thought we'd do something a little bit different that we haven't done in previous retrospectives, which I'm now kind of realizing is a missed opportunity. I kind of want to take a moment to talk about Adult Swim as a whole, in 2004 first up to our lineup now of course this is just a peek at the lineup of what was airing while aqua teen was which was like the late summer early fall of 2004. You know, we had Family Guy, Harvey Birdman, Sea Lab, Aqua Teen, Brack Show, Venture Bros, The Oblongs, and Home Movies. And I've said many times, I really, truly do love this Sunday lineup. I mean, this is, like, you can't get much better than this. You have all these great Adult Swim originals with, like, Family Guy at the beginning, and then you have The Oblongs and Home Movies. Of course, Home Movies kind of was an Adult Swim original after a certain point, But I really like this lineup. The only thing that bored me was the fact that Aqua Teen was the only new show having episodes out that, or or at least having a new episode. Again, there was the Venture Bros premiering their episode typically the Saturday before, so one day before, so I would assume most people were seeing it here for the first time, unless you were either a Venture Bros fanatic, or you just liked the anime lineup on Saturdays. But I guess in a way it was kind of two episodes, but in terms of just these shows, I really do like this lineup. But let's move on here and talk about the shows that were introduced in 2004 to Adult Swim. And on the non-anime side, which is, I, I'm assuming, more of, of your interest, first up, we have Stroker and Hoop premiering in 2004. According to Swimpedia, Stroker and Hoop only aired twice in 2004 with the episode Car Trouble, aka Feeling Dirty, So this one originally aired in August and then re-aired in October. So not a whole lot to say there, but this was Casper Kelly's kind of debut original show on Adult Swim. I think we need to cover one of these on the Patreon because I remember when this show was airing, but I remember not really being into it because I was a kid. I feel like this one isn't probably great for kids to like really latch on to like something like Aqua Teen. But looking at the lineup here, I mean, you have John Glazer, who I just love. I mean, again, you have Casper Kelly on this. So I really think it's something we need to watch at a certain point. In case you're unfamiliar, uh, the synopsis here on IMDb is that uh, Stroker and Hoop are a duo of inept private investigators living in contemporary L.A. They dress in 1970s fashion and face surreal mysteries. So, again, I can't really speak to it, but I do remember when it when it would be on, and I'm excited to check it out on the podcast here. So moving on from that... We have Tom Goes to the Mayor, which will debut after Aqua Teen goes off the air for the season. They kind of pick up right after Aqua Teen. Tom Goes to the Mayor, a show that I did not like at all at the time. I didn't become a Tim and Eric fan until I had graduated high school. I just never liked it. I'd always see like awesome show on. I'd always see Tom Goes to the Mayor and I could just never vibe with it. But now I'm a huge Tim and Eric fan. I mean, outside of Aqua Teen and Matt and Dave's work. The Tim and Eric universe is my favorite thing that Adult Swim has done, and uh, so I, I went back and re Tom Goes to the Mayor. I think it's great. I think it holds up, and there's just so many of the same people from Aqua Teen on Tom Goes to the Mayor, not in terms of our typical cast, but a lot of the same guest people are there. I mean, David Cross, Bob Odenkirk, Todd Berry. Uh, I could go on. There's so many of the same kind of guest stars on that show. So at some point, I mean, I'm just deciding we're going to cover Tom Goes to the Mayor on the Patreon just because it's uh, one of my favorite, you know, at least I love Tim and Eric at least. And I wanted to do something with my wife where we would kind of go through all the episodes because she's a big Tom Goes to the Mayor fan and Tim and Eric fan too, but we haven't really figured that out yet. But that is something I, th- I think might be fun for the Patreon is to go through all those episodes in a very quick kind of brief way. Uh, but yeah, Tom Goes to the Mayor, I love it. I understand though, that was a really big Kind of contention point among early Adult Swim fans because Tom Goes to the Mayor was really pushing the limits of what animation was. It was basically just pictures of people moving over a background. But in my mind, that is like really in line with the Adult Swim spirit. And I mean, Those people were probably even more pissed when 12 Ounce Mouse came out, which was like really pushing the limits of of what you could get away with on animation (laughs) on television because of how lax that was or, or just how minimal it was. But 12 Ounce Mouse, that's 2005, not 2004, so... Stroker and Hoop, Tom Goes to the Mayor, our third and final original kind of uh, adult swim show in 2004 is Perfect Hair Forever, which is mocking anime. Of course, you had like Mike Lazo, Matt Harrigan, and, and Matt Malero really heading that. And you had like Dave Willis on it and, and all sorts of things. So another one we need to check out on the podcast. We've touched on it before because of the, um, the anime talk show thing because this aired right before the anime talk show. But we'll have to sit down and watch one of these. But those are our three new shows this year, and definitely, you know, takes me back three very different kinds of shows. You have Stroker and Hoop coming from Casper Kelly, who is not a newbie to Adult Swim at all, but this was in, in a little bit different of of a realm. This, I think, Stroker and Hoop kind of leading the charge into 2005 and six and seven when we would get that whole new batch of shows. Stroker and Hoop really the the first one to to accomplish that. I think that more. Uh, you know, mid-2000s Adult Swim vibe. Tom Goes to the Mayor being the, the you know, introduction of Tim and Eric outside of the Hypno Germ episode. You know, Tim and Eric starting their own universe on Adult Swim, and that starts here. And then Perfect Hair Forever being the more uh, William Street-centric traditional thing, because it was Mike Lazo, Harrigan, Malero, and then a bunch of other people we're familiar with worked on Perfect Hair Forever, like a lot of the animators from Aqua Teen, did perfect hair forever as well so three very different shows here coming together and i think it's kind of a cool mix so really quickly because this isn't an anime podcast i'm just going to read through the anime that was introduced on adult swim in 2004 so we have case closed which we've talked about and i was a fan of back in the day witch hunter robin wolf's Rain, the super Milk Chan show Full Metal Alchemist, not something we've talked about, Uh, I'll I'll talk about that in a second. And then outside of Full Metal Alchemist, after that, we had Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. So some of these I'm familiar with, like Case Closed, Super Milk Jan Show, uh, Ghost in the Shell. But Full Metal Alchemist being the only one here, I really love that anime, specifically the original. Uh, Not to get too in the weeds, but Full Metal Alchemist, it originally was a manga, like probably all of these were. And then they ended up making an anime out of it. And then a lot of people didn't like the original anime because it wasn't that true to the manga because eventually the anime got further than the manga was written. So they had to start kind of making stuff up for the show. They took it in a different direction. A lot of people didn't like that. So I think in 2009-ish, they rebooted it, remaking it as Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. And that one was just pure to the manga or at least way more faithful than the original one that was introduced here in 2004 i prefer this original one i watched them both of this like back to back really the, the the original and then the the brotherhood i just like the darker tone of the original i actually i didn't read the manga so i don't really give a shit if they changed anything and i like the differences in the original one here over brotherhood which was more i don't know actiony i think brotherhood did way better at world building but this original one here, I just love the dark tone, I love the nihilistic ending of it, and uh, yeah, I, I really like that one. I remember as a kid, that I remember seeing it come on, but I just wasn't interested. For whatever reason, as a kid, the only anime that I would be interested in was like maybe Case Closed, maybe Super Milk Chan, but mainly FLCL. Not sure why, but it is what it is. So, I mean, look, I'm not an Adult Swim historian, I'm an Aqua Teen guy, so that's really the best I could give you here, but... 2004 on Adult Swim seemed like a good time because it was still very much in that classic era, which, you know, we could see some signs of it changing, for example, with Stroker and Hoop uh, and, and Tom Goes to the Mayor. So this, you know, 2004, I think being the last real classic era of Adult Swim as like those who started watching in 2001 would know it as. Because, I mean, Brack's show at this point was off the air. Harvey Birdman was about to be ending soon. Like, a lot of these original William Street shows were going away. I mean, same thing with uh, with Space Ghost. So, a lot of those shows are going away. And Aqua Teen was the only one to continue on without them. Of course, got to mention, C Lab would be ending in, like, the first half of, of 2005. So, we salute our shows that we won't see going forward. And, of course, we will address those when we get to the very beginning of season four on the podcast, but just wanted to touch on that now. I mean, 2004 Adult Swim, not a bad time to be a viewer. So let's get in to my season three thoughts. Season three of Aqua Teen was something that I was excited to cover because I didn't really know some of the episodes, but I was also afraid to cover because... Of that previously mentioned fact, I was afraid, well, what if outside of the episodes I know these aren't good, I don't like it, like, how am I going to keep doing this podcast if that's the case? And I was, you know, genuinely afraid of that because I knew season one and two were going to be fantastic. I'd already seen those episodes a billion times. But again, to season three, I hadn't seen some of these episodes and my recollection of some weren't that great. So I was genuinely afraid, like, oh, shit. Well, maybe that's the end of the podcast if these episodes suck. But, I mean, you heard the deep dives. They didn't suck. I really thoroughly enjoyed all of these episodes to some extent. I mean, really, the only one I didn't like would be Unremarkable Voyage. And even that, I don't think it was a bad episode. I just didn't really like it that much. So having said that, to me, honestly... Season three is probably the most consistent season of Aqua Teen yet. I mean, I don't think it's the best. It's not my favorite. Season two will always be my favorite, not only on on the sheer fact of it having the most episodes, but also just, you know, I grew up with it, so nothing's really going to change that unless there's uh, some mind-blowing season. But even though season two is my favorite, there are some stinkers there, uh, some that I wouldn't necessarily go back to. On season 3, there's only one episode I really wouldn't go back to. The rest I felt were very enjoyable from from top to bottom. And it makes sense because the team had been making the show for some time at this point, so everybody was kind of locked in. They were starting to get it down to a science and, you know, that just yields a great season of television. Now, I mean, you know, to season two's credit, if we want to go back to that, it's like, well, they could have dropped four episodes. If they dropped the, the worst four, which I'm not even going to attempt to figure out wh- what those are, they could have still had 20 solid episodes. Then I think season two might have been, you know, the best uh, top to bottom. But here, you know, they only have 13 episodes. It's probably easier to make less that aren't as consistent. But I mean, regardless, I mean, for what it is, the facts are the facts. I think this is a very consistent episode, and before I covered it, people were telling me, oh, I'm excited for you to talk about that one, that season, that's my favorite season, and I'd be like, oh, why? I can't imagine why. But seeing through it now, it's like, oh, well, I get why. There's all sorts of different kinds of episodes here, and I was excited by that, because I do know eventually Aqua Teen will fall more into just relying on the shock value and the violence. And here we got some of that. I mean, mainly an Unremarkable Voyage, an episode that really relied on it over anything else. But there were lots of episodes that didn't rely on that kind of thing. I mean, look at e There's really no shock or violence in that one. I mean, I guess Shake and Carl get like electrocuted at the end, but I mean, or, you know, there's that little baby robot element of it, but that's not not that bad. Like there's so many different kinds of episodes in this season that I really enjoyed it. And And doing this podcast... I never really knew what I, what kind of episode I was going to get. It, it wasn't just, oh, a villain shows up every week like it was in season one. It wasn't just, oh, the Aqua Teens hanging out at home like they had to do in season two. There was a, just a nice mix of them going out and doing things, but then also staying back at the house and just everything that you could love about Aqua Teen, I feel like was in this season. Of course, they didn't rely on guest stars as much here. They didn't rely on villains as much here, but... That's not knocking it. I mean, it's not even like it was just episodes where it was just the Aqua Teens talking. We did get some of those, you know, and some of those are my favorite, like E-Dork, but uh, there's just a, a wide variety here and they're just kind of playing like the greatest hits on how to go about doing an Aqua Teen episode, but also adding some new elements to things. And also because of the way that the, they were able to do more animation-wise and more, you know, technology-wise, we were able to get different kinds of episodes like Hypno Germ. We couldn't have got anything like that in the first season, we got something like South Bronx Paradise Diet, which was all sorts of new animation. But then the opposite of that, we had E-Dork, which had barely any animation because most of it's Shake just standing there with all this gear on. So you never really knew where this season was going to take you again. Like, I'm not just gonna, I'm not going to list every episode out, but we just got so many different kinds of episodes here that it's a really solid one. I mean, it might even be the best starting point for anyone new to the show, because you do get like a little taste of kind of everything that Aqua Teen can do, but at the same time, it pushes the boundaries of things. Not only in terms of the technology, which of course, like you know, in animation wise, we got something like Carl running. We got that animation. So now we're gonna have Carl run not only in this season, but in future seasons. Uh, they can they can say asshole here. I mean, that goes to show how further removed they are from being trapped under these hardcore standards and practices and, and, and kid vid laws where they can say asshole on Adult Swim. They can show blood. They can show piss. Like they couldn't show this stuff in previous seasons. So because of that, I think that season three is like such a good mix uh, of traditional Dadaist space ghost early Aqua Teen humor, but then also having some shock value to it and, and violence and, and sexual jokes too. But I mean, I want to mention something like gee whiz here, which really showed how comfortable everyone working on the show was, and that they had this barrier in front of them of they originally wanted to do this religious-themed episode, they couldn't, and they turned around and made an episode that was even better. They had to cut a lot of the religious elements, but they replaced it with just, you know, a middle finger to, to the whole concept of censorship and standards and practices, which makes that such a legendary episode. And you know, season one Aqua Teen, They they wouldn't have done something like that. Not only because they might have been afraid to uh, to offend their or, overlords in a sense, but also I just don't know if they would have had the confidence or the know-how to go about doing an episode like that. So speaking to that confidence that they had, we did get episodes like Hypno Germ and, and Spacegate World, two episodes very much not about the Aqua Teens. Now, we got that back in season two with the last one, But, I mean, that episode was so fanservice-y, I don't think Matt and Dave were afraid people would complain about it, right? But with HypnoGerm and SpaceGate World, you really do run that risk, especially HypnoGerm, and people very much did complain. But, again, to what this season added to Aqua Teen was Matt and Dave showing that they're not afraid to write episodes without the teens in it, which we will see in Season 5 very heavily. I definitely noticed less of a body horror element to season three, which was explored a lot in season two. And I want to shout out Edork because that's like the, um, the opposite of body horror because we, you know, instead of having Shake, you know, melt over the course of the episode or whatever, we had him put more and more of this technology on. So that was a fun little observation. But we did get it, you know, with like South Bronx Paradise Diet, specifically with Carl. And they did it in a really fun animation way of him crawling on the ceiling and elements like that but overall again a very consistent season I really enjoyed this season I was surprised how much I enjoyed this season it definitely seems like a natural progression for the show in terms of the network standards that they had to adhere to but also the changing technology of the time and of course just the growing in skill set of those on the show they just got better at making the show and we see that in full force here the last thing I need to mention here would be our cold open. Now, of course, the first two seasons we had Dr. Weird, which were written, you know, specifically to be cold opens. And then here in the third season, we had Space Kataz, which very much was not. It was written to be just, you know, a full pilot. It was supposed to be a spin-off show, and we get all into that over on the Patreon. But in terms of my preference here, of course, I mean, I prefer the Dr. Weird. I doubt that many people prefer the Space Guitars, especially if you know that it wasn't supposed to be Cold Opens. Having said that, as we will see in Season 4, after Space Guitaz, we're not going to have any more Cold Opens. I mean, as this is the last season with Cold Opens, I understand why Matt and Dave stopped doing them. But yeah, I mean, here we could see something completely different and it I could see it leading to confusion. I believe we mentioned it back in Remooned. We probably talked about it in Moonmaster as well. Is if you're not really that familiar with the show and you see an opening with the Moonanites and then you see them back in that episode completely unrelated to the cold opening, I could see that being confusing. And I wonder if that, you know, led to any issues. I doubt it, but I mean who knows? I I I could see that being confusing. And I guess. You know, to uh, the, the differences here between season one and two, and then three would be not as many villains here. Not my, co- not really complaint of mine. I would have liked to have seen a Plutonian episode, but you know, I understand why they didn't. Since we had the Plutonians in every single cold open, basically, so it makes sense. Although, would have been nice to see them. And actually, we won't really see them in a major way until the episode Space Caduce. In season ten, which is in 2013 in our timeline here, so yeah, I mean, this is really where we see Matt and Dave kind of drop more of the the villain elements, but not return to classic villains. They return to MCP pants here, but uh, until the 2007 film, we don't see a lot of these classic villains anymore, which is you know a good thing. It allows them to do other things, but also kind of sad considering the first two seasons of the show relied so much on villains and, and returning villains. So I guess overall, those are my, you know, overarching thoughts on season three. As always, you can go back and listen to every individual deep dive because I get into more specifics there, but again, enjoyed this season. I really did like it. And if you watched the, um the video ranking Not many of the episodes here really went below the S and A tier because everything here really I felt was worthwhile. I mean, for me, Unremarkable Voyage I didn't like. That's probably just personal taste. And the other episodes I wasn't crazy about, again, it's just personal taste. I don't necessarily think that they are poorly paced or anything like that. So excited to get into season four, the last season that I was really familiar with until I kind of dropped off with my Aqua Teen viewing, and I know that one gets raunchier, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So as always, it was nice to put a little bow onto season three and also onto 2004 as just a year and also a year on Adult Swim. As always, thank you so much for sticking along with me throughout the whole season there, this whole first half of 2023, and the second half, we're going to be heading over to season four, but, you know, again, season three, it was a delight, and got to shout out our patrons here, our supporters, our Moonmasters, who keep this show going and allowed me to deep dive into season three. So, of course, thank you to our Highlander, Nick. There can be only one! There's only one season three of Aqua Teen and there's only one Nick and our number one in the hood G tier patrons, the patrons who are number one in their respective hoods. We have Sean, Ian, Captain Buford, Robison, Jason, Carl, Lecheratone69, Empower706, and Shinsuki. You guys can listen to me talk about season three any day of the week. Next week, of course, we are doing a community jiggle, and then eventually we'll be starting season four. I'll see you then. Keep it cool. Take it easy. Bye-bye. All right. Coming in here with this Napoleon dynamite inspired thing, uh, completely unintentionally, I wasn't trying to make it sound like that. It just ended up that way. Again, it's a remix of a friend's track. I took it and what I would do at that time, uh, probably showing my intelligent dance music uh, affinity would be taking like the clips they provided and then just chopping everything up really small. So like I chopped up the vocalist clip and, and all that stuff. So, um, a lot of it is original here it's not like the original track and and you can check out the full thing in the description i'll put a link to it i'm just not going to include the full thing here i'm just going to play you the end of the track enjoy